Good morning. My name is John Smetanka. The name of our program is With Respect. This morning's guest is David Dempsey. David is an author. He is a former member of Governor Jim Blanchard's uh, administration. He was the, the environmental advisor to uh, Governor Blanchard, member of the Great Lakes Fishery Commission, and the author of three books, Ruin and Recovery, which is the history of conservation in Michigan, On the Brink, which is history of, and the future of the Great Lakes, and a book we're going to be talking with him about uh, some today, uh, William G. Milliken, who, as many of you know, is our former governor, the longest-serving governor in Michigan history. This morning's program, With Respect, with David Dempsey. We'll be right back. David, how are you? Great. How are you, John? Great. Well, thanks for being our uh, joining in this discussion today. There's a number of things I'd like to talk to you about. Um, all of them deal with Michigan and uh, and your relationship to Michigan. But I'd like to start off with um, where did you start? How did you get started in life and get to where you're at? Well, I grew up in the Detroit area, actually Dearborn, Michigan, which is uh, southeast Michigan in. Uh, a Republican family. My father was a political science professor at the University of Michigan Dearborn and uh, later on served uh, a variety of Republican office holders. He organized the Romney Volunteers back in 1962. I was one of the organizers. So I grew up surrounded by politics. Uh, Governor George Romney. That's right. Governor okay. George Romney who preceded Governor Milliken. Uh, I went to Western Michigan University as an undergrad and uh, then got involved in journalism for a while, and then uh, ultimately got involved as an environmental advocate or a conservation advocate. And uh, I guess I have three loves. One is government and policy and politics, which has always fascinated me. The second is the outdoors, uh, conservation. The third is writing. So I've been really lucky to try to explore all three of those uh, in my career. I think that's, it. My, my mother used to say that uh, a person whose hobby is their work and whose work... I feel very fortunate. I've loved and been challenged and excited by all the work I've been able to do. It's, it really is great to work in a way that, uh, about things you're passionate about. Well, l let's talk about the environment. What uh, got you involved in, 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 why is that, you, are you passionate about that? It has to do with growing up in Michigan. Now, in, in researching uh, the histories of other conservationists, I have found that most of them spent a lot of time outdoors in their childhood. Well, I really didn't. I grew up in suburbia. But my grandparents, my mother's uh, parents, were from the Upper Peninsula. And so every summer, we would take, get, jump in the station wagon before there were SUVs and uh, 
go up to the western UP. My grandfather was from Houghton, and my grandmother lived in Ironwood. And just as a kid, just being exposed to that wildness of, of the Upper Peninsula, it really uh, bred a love for the outdoors in me. And uh, sometime in my college years, I decided that I thought that would be a great way to spend my professional life. So I kind of veered from journalism into natural resources. Had you started off in journalism? Is that what it was? That's right. My dream initially was to be the editor of the New York Times. And I did spend about a year after college as a weekly newspaper reporter. And I decided it would take too long to become the editor of the New York Times. So I'd <laughs> want to do something more <laughs> tangible. My brother um, I got his degree in journalism at Northwestern. And his first job uh, was at the Benton Harbor News Palladium. Yes. And when he went there, he was interviewed by uh, Bert Lindenfeld, who was the editor at the time, and Bert asked him the question towards the end of the interview, well, uh, uh, well, Mr. Smetanka, where do you want to be in five years? And anybody who knows Bert would know that that was a, a powerful question, asked in a powerful way and demanding. So Ray said, well, actually, Mr. Lindenfeld, I'd like to be sitting in your seat. <laughs> <laughs> He got the job. Why he would get the job, I don't know, but he got the job. I guess candor was a good thing. Candor, in that case, was a good thing. I think that if you wait a little bit longer, you may have a better shot at being the editor of the New York Times because they seem to be going through them rather quickly. <laughs> they, they are lately, in the last five years. <laughs> so anyway, journalism led to uh, going into the environment. Kind of you blended into um, uh, your experiences up in the UP. Right. And... Uh, I knew almost nothing about the environment at the time I started working professionally on the environment. But one thing I'll say for a journalism training is that it gives you communication skills that will be good in almost any walk of life. And so I was able to use the writing and the other communication skills I've learned to help me get my feet wet in the environmental area. So why? why do, what's the big deal? Well, Michigan, and especially southwestern Michigan in many ways, is one of the most majestic places on the face of the earth. The Great Lakes that surround us have almost one-fifth of the world's uh, surface fresh water. And just speaking of Southwest Michigan, which I've always been especially interested in, um, it's one of the most uh, naturally rich areas of the state and of the Midwest. Because of the unique geography and, and landforms here, there are more uh, plant and wildlife species that uh, that live here or pass through here than almost any other part of Michigan. It's really? That's it's because I would, I mean, I've been up to Sleeping Bear Dunes and I've been to uh, the Upper Peninsula, the Keweenaw Peninsula, beautiful places. Right. But, I, but I've never thought of uh, southwestern Michigan as being that unique. It really is. Uh, for one thing, it's a migratory corridor for birds, and so a lot of uh, birds pass through here either in the spring or the fall. And so in a sense, this area is an important stopping point for them. You can see hundreds of species if you're attentive. And I have some birding friends down here who love to do that. But it's also sort of a crossroads of the north and the south and the east and the west. Um, you will find some species in the dune country here that you would, the closest, um, next closest spot is on the eastern seaboard in the dunes along the Atlantic Ocean. Hmm. You will find western prairie species here. You will find northern species and species that you traditionally find only in the south. So this is like a crossroads of, of species, and it's uh, got some obviously magnificent scenery, too. Okay, a, uh, an, 
an uncle of mine um, went to the University of Chicago and uh, had a lot of friends who were professors there. And the story in our family was that he would bring them out to the Grand Mere area to um, traipse around the lakes there. And, and the reason that they, they um, said that they came out there was because it was a, a unique ecosystem. Mm -hmm. They didn't use the word ecosystem when I was growing up. Right. But they talked about it as being, <clears throat> pardon me, being a, um, in a sense, ecologically untouched for about the last 10,000 years. That's right. And I, I didn't understand that, but now you're going to tell me about that. Why? Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about it. Uh, among ecologists, which is a science that didn't exist 100 years ago and has really grown, uh, this area is legendary. The Indiana dunes and the southwest Michigan dunes are considered the birthplace of ecology, really, because really? a scientist from the University of Chicago named Henry Coles, I believe, I used to know this because it's in one of my books, uh, did the initial uh, research on what's called plant succession in this part of uh, the country, where he, he basically took, started at the lakefront and walked backward into the dunes and said, as you walk back, you're basically walking back in time and you're seeing the succession of plant species that have existed on the shores of the Great Lakes since the last glacial era. And uh, he's w world famous among ecologists. And so Southwest Michigan and the dunes of Indiana are really kind of a mecca for that, that science and taught us a lot. Are you saying that, that if, if I was to stand, stand on the lakeshore and find a place where I could just march away from it. I could somehow, like reading the, uh, the rings of trees, I could see a history of, of our area for quite a bit. Absolutely. As you move inland, you see the mature forest develop. The lakeshore uh, with the exposed dunes is what was initially here, of course. And as time passed, it's initially here for miles inland. As time passed, trees colonized and plants and uh, you're basically looking at uh, a whole process of thousands of years of, of evolution. Well, that's interesting because our, uh, my, my family's place, my grandparents um, bought a farm on Lake Michigan back in 1914, and they commuted back and forth from Chicago to, um, to work the farm. They took pictures back in the 1920s of the area, and uh, it is amazing to me, today especially, that it was wide open. You could see for miles. You could see from our, our back porch on up uh, south to the, the, uh, the various um, um, component lakes of the, of the Grand Mirror Lakes. And today it's all grown up with trees and you, could, you can't see anywhere. Mm -hmm. Just all trees. I don't know whether, you know, and my grandparents ceased farming it uh, many years ago and so it has been sort of growing wild since then. There was no plantings. We didn't do any intentional plantings uh, of trees or um, uh, plants of any other sort. So it's all been on its own. Right. And that's actually one of the hopeful stories in conservation today, that nature is very resilient. Uh, there's a lot of, there's an excessive amount, I think, of gloom and doom in the environmental movement about how bad things are. But really what we've learned is when you let nature run its course, things can heal and recover very quickly in a generation or two. Is it true, um, there's a, 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 a factoid I heard, that back, that today rather, there are more trees east of the Mississippi than there were 
um, when we, the um, uh, Europeans first came to the States, or what is now the States? I think that's true, and there's two reasons for that. One is that a conscious effort has been made in the last 100 years by states, by the federal government, and by individual landowners to replant trees. The, in the Depression era, the Civilian Conservation Corps literally replanted millions of trees in Michigan. Um, on lands that had been uh, basically exhausted, they were farmed or logged, and there was no economic value left to them. Um, so there has been a policy and a cultural approach for 100 years of bringing the forests back. And as well, um, a lot of lands in the East have uh, gone from what we used to think of as economically productive uses to another kind of economic value, which is their, their natural value. And so, yes, through both uh, letting the land heal and replanting it, we do have uh, more forest land than we've ever had in the East. And more deer and any more uh, other species than we ever had. Well, trees are, are they not, one of the great uh, replenishers of our atmosphere. That's right. The uh, trees take in our excess carbon and produce, produce oxygen. So uh, the more we plant, the more we fight uh, the effects of climate change. Well, we, we hear in, on the uh, various programs on television and, the, and, and articles in the papers and magazines about the loss of the rainforest uh, down in, in Brazil, in the Amazon Valley. Um, is there any possibility that, that we are, in, in, at least in some small measure, replacing uh, some of that with what we are talking about is the regrowth of trees and other bio, bio, biota? Yes, I think we are actually. I'm not saying that I'm not concerned about the Amazon rainforest loss, but I, I should mention I just finished a, a very interesting book. The title is 1491, and it's basically a book about what were the Americas like before Columbus got here. When I was going to school in the 60s and 70s, you sort of got the impression that it was a natural paradise. Uh, there were a few Native Americans here, but there really wasn't much going on. Well, this book's thesis is completely the opposite, and even hypothesizes that the Amazon rainforest is an artifact of humankind, that it was actually managed, created by the Native American population. So, so many of the things that we environmentalists have said are, you know, works of God that we should just leave alone are actually works of humankind, and wow. that applies throughout the Americas. So, uh, in this part of America, North America, and especially in Southwest Michigan, the the native prairies uh, were managed by Native Americans through uh, fire and other means to maintain uh, land for agriculture and also to herd game animals. So a lot of what the initial European visitors, uh, explorers came here and found was, was actually a managed landscape. And it's a fascinating book. Well, we're going to take a break right now for a few minutes and uh, come back. We are speaking to David Dempsey, author, environmentalist, and uh, sometimes politician. We'll be right back.
We're back now with David Dempsey, and I tease him about being uh, a, at some point a, a former politician, uh, but um, uh, you in fact did serve in the government of the gubernatorial administration of uh, Governor Blanchard as his environmental advisor. Uh, what was it like? What was the difference between being in government and dealing with the environment and now you're out and you're on your own, so to speak? Well, I made more money in government. <laughs> uh, I think the pay uh, of government employees is quite handsome. But I have more psychic income now, and that is because as a outside of government, you can speak pretty much your mind. You obviously have to be careful not to offend people you'll need to work with later on, but... When you are in government, especially if you're working for an elected office holder, you're essentially uh, representing them and their views, and you may often disagree with, uh, with their decisions, but you have to toe the party line. So, on the other hand, when you're working for a governor in particular, you can have a direct impact on things you really care about. One of the early, and still to me most lasting satisfactions I had working for Governor Blanchard was that he had an interest in the dunes of southwest Michigan. And right when he took office, there was a major fight going on over the uh, a mining sand dune mining site in Bridgman. And as a result of a lot of factors, and not just the governor's work and certainly not my work, the state in 1984 ended up purchasing most of the area that was going to be mined and adding it to Warren Dune State Park. And so I felt in a small way that here's something that I can in 50 years look back and go, well, at least I helped with that. Mm -hmm. When you're out of government, you never know for sure what kind of effect you're going to have. Well, what brings you down to southwestern Michigan today? A couple of things. One of the uh, reasons I'm here was to meet with folks from the uh, Chickaming uh, Cons Land Conservancy, which I believe is called the Chickaming Open Lands Project. And we had a discussion about their Galeen River uh, watershed initiative and how it's going. And, and we had a really good dialogue about what could be done to build on their success. And they, uh, it's a very impressive group. It's fairly new. It has a lot of enthusiastic community support. And they've essentially begun the very difficult work of, of identifying key pieces of land and the landowners who control that land and working with them for stewardship. For example, trying to work with landowners to buy development rights along um, the riverfront that they own along the Galeen. Uh, mm -hmm. Buying development rights means essentially paying a landowner to commit to not developing that portion of their landscape. And there are benefits to the river of that in terms of uh, vegetation that captures pollutants and, and reduces runoff. So uh, we had a kind of a freewheeling discussion about what they're doing and how they might be able to expand their funding base and do more work. Because this part of the state really is both precious naturally and uh, under you know a lot of development pressure so there's some lands that we need to try to conserve now while we have a chance and uh, what does what are they looking to do are, are, are they looking to have some kind of an organization that uh, uh, will own property or is it just a, a lobbying group or what no lobbying at all I think their main focus is going to be and has been um, working with landowners private landowners to protect land, help them manage land so that it's uh, sustainable. And yes, I think their long-term vision is they want to uh, purchase some lands and operate them as preserves or parks, uh, but usable by the public. And so it's really going to be, it really is, tangible, hands-on conservation, not so much 
policy or, or lobbying. So what you just uh, said a little bit earlier is that um, having a river, which is a river side, a river bank, which is not developed in the sense that it's, it's um, uh, messed with or, right. or by, uh, by humans, has some value? Has great value. What we've learned in the environmental sciences in the last 50 years is that a lot of the money we spend to treat pollution um, would be unnecessary if we knew about and took advantage of nature's processes. Wetlands are kind of scorned by a lot of people, but they basically are natural uh, waste treatment systems. They filter pollutants, they protect water quality, and they have other values. So to the extent we can uh, protect corridors along our streams, we are essentially reducing the downstream cost of building a sewage treatment plant or some other means of capturing the pollution. So there is an economic value that is very important. Well, that's interesting that those, uh, those of us, of which I am one, that want to see the taxes <clears throat> that I pay as low as possible, um, um, actually do then get a benefit, a real cash benefit from um, taking care of my land. That's right. In two ways, potentially. One way is the what they call ecological services such as uh, waste treatment by wetlands or other uh, flood control uh, which wetlands serve as a purpose for. Um, another way, and that's one of the things we talked about this morning at the Conservancy, was uh, trying to increase the incentives for landowners to do this through tax benefits. There are There's a bill going through Congress that I'm not really close to, but it is it would improve the tax deductions and credits for donations of land or, or easements so that landowners would have a tangible benefit as well as a sort of social benefit of donating land. But I saw an, um, a factoid, another factoid in the news the other day that our population of the United States is going to be uh, increasing by 20 or 25 percent whether it's by uh, natural growth or by uh, immigration or whatever, um, but it's it, to a, a, a large amount of pressure, people pressure is going to be put on the environment. So how do we, how do we balance that? I mean, you know, we have open land out here that they don't have, say, in Chicago or mm -hmm. Detroit or, or even Grand Rapids. So, I mean, why not have um, those wetlands turned into uh, homes and uh, shopping centers and schools and and roads and that sort of thing. Well, um, it, it balance is the key word, and it's kind of a cliche in politics that's not often respected. But I, I believe it's becoming more and more respected in conservation as the way to go. There, there used to be more of a, I think, a sentiment among environmentalists of we need to stop development, but now the I think the recognition is there that development will continue. It needs to be a development in the places that can handle it. Um, and it, it, one of the big challenges in Michigan and elsewhere is trying to give people reasons to want to live in cities so that the development that we can uh, steer to cities goes there instead of on uh, open land or park land or forest land. And that's a challenge our entire society faces. But um, I think the point is if you develop land that's appropriate for development uh, and set aside land that is not appropriate for development and benefits society both ways. We do need the tax value and benefits of development. We also need the 
economic value of the open spaces. Here. Well, you know, I've heard I've heard something in uh, uh, in government and and on the news uh, called brownfields. What what are brownfields? Brownfields are lands that were industrialized in the usually in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and due to the fact we weren't really conscious of contamination or chemicals as a problem back then, those lands are now in many cases drenched or soaked with uh, chemicals. And because there's, it's so expensive to clean up, now that the comp original companies have gone bankrupt or moved on, those lands often sit in our cities. They are wastelands, they are a, a drag on the aesthetics and the tax base of the community. And uh, many businesses would prefer not to deal with that when they locate. They'd rather go to a place that's never been developed, build their factory or their operation there, and not have to deal with billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars in cleanup. So in the last um, 20 years, particularly in the last decade, and this is an area where I'd actually have to give Governor Engler a lot of credit, uh, Michigan and the federal government have invested a lot of money, public money, in cleaning up those areas and making them available for new uh, development inside city uh, boundaries. And I'm sure, not familiar with particular projects here, but I know that Benton Harbor and, and the St. Joe area have benefited from some of that money. So in, in, uh, is basically better use of the land that we already have uh, affected? Right. A lot of the, uh, these older parcels already have city water, sewer, and roads, and so the taxpayers made the investment in these lands, but they're not being productively used. If you can bring um, business back to these lands by basically taking care of the contamination for them and giving them a liability protection for any contamination that's found in the future, you've served a lot of purposes. You've kept the development from going out into the rural areas and uh, sprawling. You've brought jobs back to the city, and you've cleaned up the environment, which is a, a win for everybody. One of the things that struck me in this area, uh, and this surprised me, uh, that has uh, has surprised me in the last uh, uh, year or so, is to see the the huge number of subdivisions coming in, uh, coming online in our area. And I wonder where, first of all, where's the money that's that's paying for these mini mansions, uh, or not just not even necessarily uh, maybe just many mini mansions, but there's still more and more land is being taken up. Um, by houses and roads that at one point was farmland. Right. Now we're coming into a surprise, surprise. We find out that um, we are too dependent on foreign oil. Now everybody agrees with this. Um, and the, um, w we have an asset called corn, which can turn uh, can give us uh, methane or what is it? I mean, ethanol. Right, ethanol. Uh -huh. And can power our vehicles and can our, decrease our our dependence on foreign oil or oil generally. So, um, but at the same time, we're still eating up farmland that could be used to grow our fuel as well as our food. It, it, it strikes me as rather odd. This has been going on for a long time. The last time I checked, Michigan had been losing five acres of farmland per hour every day of the, every year for the last 25 years. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's an appalling trend. And all the way back to Governor Milliken's time, and every governor since, has attempted to deal with the problem. But it's a very difficult one because most of our financial incentives are for subdivision development on farmland. Farmers in many cases are very close to the margin and they almost count on the ability to sell their farmland when they retire as their mm -hmm. retirement income. And mm -hmm. 
until and unless we come up with some major federal and state and local incentives to financial incentives for farmers to stay uh, in, in to keep their land in production, I think we're going to see a continuing loss of that land. Well, it, it strikes me is that uh, we need to focus on this. This is a critical, critical thing in our in our uh, country's future with the, the rapid increase in the, in the population that we are, are predicted to have. Um, I, I personally would not like to see wall-to-wall -wall people uh, spread across the state of Michigan or any place else. If we can uh, produce um, great places to live and to raise our families, um, which doesn't necessarily require that we invade every last uh, acre of, of uh, farmland or forest land in our state, that would be just fine with me. Right, and I think that the uh, potential is there to do that, but, well, this is a problem that relates to conservation in general. There's too much divisiveness, uh, well, maybe in society generally, but certainly in conservation. We have farmers who mistrust conservationists, conservationists who don't think farmers are doing a good enough job managing the land, and conservationists and environmentalists who disagree over hunting and fishing. This potentially powerful constituency for land conservation is pretty much uh, ineffectual because of the, the mutual suspicions. And I think if we can ever get to a point where farmers and conservationists, environmentalists can work together productively, we could turn around some of this uh, land consumption that is so dangerous to our future. Well, you've, you've hit on something which uh, we're going to segue into uh, um, talking about politics again, but the, the yelling at one another, uh, which um, goes on in politics, not just in public life, but in, in private. Everybody's got a, uh, the idea that if they can shout louder, uh, they can think better and produce uh, better results. I'm not sure that that's true, but um, we'll talk about that in a minute. Right now, we're going to take a break. We're with David Dempsey, environmentalist, author, and governmental advocate. We'll be right back. Dempsey. David, you, uh, you wrote three books, and one of them is about uh, our former governor, William Milliken, the longest-serving governor in Michigan history. And um, why don't you tell us what you found, some, some basic observations about the man and his times. A couple of things stand out. One is uh, the role of place in the Milliken uh, character. He grew up in the Traverse City area, which is one of the most beautiful parts of America or North America and one of the reasons I initially was interested in writing about him was because he was also a strong conservationist and I think the fact that he grew up playing and living along Grand Traverse Bay had a lot to do with his uh, reputation which I think is well earned as our most outstanding environmental governor um, but at the title the subtitle of the book is Michigan's passionate moderate and that's because 
to me, the real Millikan legacy is not the environment. It is the idea of trying to work together with all parties in a civil manner to advance the common good. Um, if, he's, if there's one adjective that everybody I interviewed for the biography used to describe him, it's the word civil. Uh, he wasn't a name-caller. He wasn't a shouter. He, uh, for better or worse, was uh, a close advocate, an ally of Governor or Detroit Mayor Coleman Young, who was a Democrat, but he also managed to get along with conservatives. And so his legacy really is one I think we can benefit from today, which is uh, let's put aside the divisiveness. Let's see what we can work together on and, and get done for the state. I read your book, and one of the things I was struck by is you compared Milliken to a number of other contemporary governors uh, of his time who seemed to participate somewhat in the same character traits, that is, ability to deal across a broad political spectrum. I think you talked about uh, uh, Governor Scranton in Pennsylvania, right. and who were the others? Well, Rockefeller, uh, uh, several governors in the Midwest uh, at that time, Governor Thompson of Illinois, and before that, uh, a couple others. Uh, there was a whole generation of Republican moderates who were in power and I think uh, very effective at advancing the, the uh, public interest. But this is the thing which um, puzzles me. We, I don't think we can say that, um, that Milliken and Scranton and these other moderate governors um, were the rule in this country prior to their entry on the scene. Uh, you know, you talk about, um, we, today we decry the shout, what I call shout journalism or shout politics. Right. And we say, oh gee, it was great when Milliken was around or when so-and-so was around. We didn't yell at each other. And that's a big change in our country's history. Our country, if you go back to the politics of the 1800s, it was pretty brutal. I mean, it makes, it pales um, Today's nasty politics pales in significance to the 1820 election, or the 1828 election, uh, when far more obnoxious things were said about each other and fights, uh, physical fights, were a part of every campaign. Um, and, and the newspapers, holy mackerel, if you read those, those early 1800 newspapers, when they dealt with politics, it was pretty brutal and one-sided. It was. I guess part of the lesson of that is that politics in, in all ways is a cycle. Um, in many, we go through cycles of what I call coarse politics and civil politics. And a lot of it has to do with the generations that are in power and what's going on at the time. So I wouldn't idealize you know, all of American history uh, as a bygone era of uh, amity and, and civility. It just happened that in the post-World War II era, uh, there was a generation of politicians, particularly Republicans, uh, who were moderate. Many of them had served in, in the armed forces in World War II and came back, I think, with a feeling of uh, desire to promote the common good, uh, advance society. Um, and that we don't have that now, but we also have excessive partisanship you know, on the Democratic and liberal side too. So, and I'm hoping that the cycle, the pendulum will swing back again, but I'm, I'm not sure it will for a while. What, what, um, what makes it, what, how does that happen? Where, where does the changes come from that bring us back to civility? 
I, I talk to people all over uh, this state and, and, and this country and, and the, frankly and friends in, in Europe who look at our politics and say and our politicians today and say bah superficial loud um, unsophisticated um, and on and on and on and and we don't and I, I, we, I was just out in, a, in an event uh, recently where some politicians were walking around and shaking hands, and I heard from the people that uh, stood uh, behind them or had just had their hands shaken, and a tremendous disrespect really? for them. That's they said, oh, he's a politician. Oh, he, she's just a politician. And um, having run for office myself on, a couple, on several occasions, uh, I know how hard the work is and how you basically have to be ready for anything. Uh, uh, tired, just exhausted, shaking hands, your arm hurts, your face hurts, everything hurts uh, when you finish a day of it. And you're basically trying to get out and touch people and meet them and right. let, them, let them influence you and, and hopefully you can influence them. But I don't see today uh, much respect for the practitioners of politics, the people who have the guts to go out and do it. I don't know. Well, I have two comments about that. I was raised to believe that public service was the most honorable profession and the most important thing you could do. My father was a public servant and he really was an idealist as well as a pragmatic guy. And I've always had uh, a high respect for people in public service. I think they make a lot of sacrifices, although I mentioned earlier that I was paid more as a environmental advisor to the governor. Basically most people in political life could make a lot more money uh, in the private sector. So there's financial sacrifices, family sacrifices, and I think that we need to respect people who do their best to uh, serve the public. As far as the lack of respect for politicians today and the causes of that, ultimately in a way I think it comes back to us as citizens. When I began researching environmental topics for my previous books and looking at how the environmental conservation movement made such progress in the 60s and 70s, it was because the citizenry was very active, uh, involved, uh, spoke out a lot, held politicians accountable, and uh, I think served as a check on some of the, the noise that we are getting now. In the last 30 years our society has changed a lot. Uh, we're working more, we're more, we have more entertainment options, whether it's the internet or or iPods or whatever, and I think people are just spending less time thinking about uh, public policy and government and really paying attention. And so now we've gotten to this era of the TV soundbite, the the ad that just sort of grabs your attention, and we we don't study the issues as much as we should. So the response to that, and among the political class, or at least some people, is that they become cynical and decide to exploit our basest instincts. But in, if we were more if we had a more active citizenry, I think a lot of that would, would go away. And I'm hoping it comes back. Well, so how, how is uh, Milliken, how was Milliken unique, if he was unique, in that, uh, that, uh, in that era uh, that he was uh, active as a politician? And today? He was unique in two ways. Part of it was his times. Um, he happened to serve at a time when Michigan... Uh, was I think making a transition from being a primarily democratic state to a republican state, but uh, in a sense he was able to bridge the gap uh, 
worked with Democrats. He usually ran at the, uh, at the top of the ticket in terms of the vote count he got in Michigan. People would vote Demo for Democratic U.S. senators and legislators in their districts, but vote for him for governor because they saw him as sort of rising above uh, petty politics. And I guess the other thing that's unique about him uh, is that um, he he didn't have an ambition to go beyond Michigan. Michigan was his love. Uh, he didn't aspire to be president or senator. I think what loses respect for a lot of politicians these days, and it's partly because of term limits, is that they always seem to have their eye on the next job as opposed to doing a good job of what they're, they're doing. Milken was happy being governor, and that's, that's as far as he wanted to go, and he didn't want to become anything more than that. And uh, So I guess I want to slip in a little plug for getting rid of term limits, even though I voted for them. I voted for term limits in 1992 in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you why. It was because of Dominic Jacobetti. He had been in office forever. I watched him perform in Lansing. I was not impressed. I think he was served too long. Um, and I think, as, as you might recall, there was a major scandal that erupted having to do with taxpayers' money being spent on all kinds of absurd things. But. Uh, it was, I prosecuted some of those. I'm sure you did, <laughs> and it was in, but it was a knee-jerk response to this problem of people staying in office too long. I, I now see the, the downside. Uh, I have worked on and off on Lansing issues over the last few years, and essentially we've created a bunch of people who don't, have no investment in the institution. And it's increased the partisanship. If you're not going to be there 20 years and have to get along with the people on the other side of the aisle, and, and you, you're, all the incentives are to... to demonize and divide and fight uh, because you just assume we've got only so many years to make a difference. So in a lot of ways our climate in Michigan would improve if we either relaxed or repealed the term limits. And I, it's one of the few votes I've cast that I really regret. But, but what, this is the thing which troubles me about the idea that you presented about uh, a Millican, the, the civil person. Um, what eventually happened is that partisanship, before term limits, right. partisanship became much more ideological uh, and perhaps financial, I don't know, I mean, perhaps economic, perhaps there are economic interests on, on the two sides which demanded uh, what I'm about to describe. But I, it, it certainly became a mark of personhood, manhood or womanhood, that you had to stand up and fight uh, for a principle and never change your principle. Um, and that that was equated with being a good steward of the public trust. And um, so if you, whether it's right to life or pro-choice, or whether it was um, the environment or industry, mm -hmm. whether it was uh, no taxes or more taxes, whatever those, the issue that, that you, um, you know, we're going to ride in on, you had to, as a public servant or politician, um, because it was demanded, be a flamethrower. You well, had to get up there and really shake the, shake the trees. Well, there was a strain of that in Milliken's day. A lot of Republicans were not happy with him because they thought he was too accommodating to the Democrats, to accommodating to people who had different points of view than his own. And uh, I'm not, he wasn't universally popular in the party, and when he left office, there was a sigh of relief among many Republicans that they could now have somebody who would really be a true 
Republican and just stand up for Republican principles. I, I have a confession to make is that, and that is that while I was serving Governor Blanchard in the 80s, I kind of watched uh, uh, public, the public dialogue in Michigan get coarser and coarser. And he, Governor Blanchard was, I think, part of that. Uh, I don't know if he initiated it or, or participated in it, but either way, it became, in the eight years that he was governor, things really deteriorated to the point where uh, I felt kind of embarrassed by his uh, unsuccessful campaign in 1990 because it was so superficial. It was based on basically trying to wrench people's emotions without getting them to think. And uh, I think this has happened nationally since the 1980s. The whole di dialogue has become, uh, you know, it's, it's become warfare, really. Mm -hmm. And that's not good for us. Well, it certainly has become warfare. And in, in many places, not just in Michigan, the, uh, the fighting has become uh, almost physical. Um, I noticed in the Texas legislature they had a, a partisan fight over redistricting uh, this, what, three, four or five years ago, in which half of the legislature, the Democratic half in this particular situation, just picked up and left the state. That's right. Because they didn't want to provide a quorum for the Republicans to do something on redistricting. And the devil take the hindmost. They couldn't get them to come back into the state uh, so that the police would have the jurisdiction to haul them into the legislature. Right. And I thought that was something of what I'm trying to describe. Um, uh, it, it, what I find uh, offensive, and that is a, a form of politics which takes shout politics to the extreme, where it becomes uh, very destructive of, uh, not destructive of the, partisan, the, the party itself, but it also is destructive to the country. Well, you, as you pointed out earlier, this, these things do come in cycles, and physical altercations are not unknown in American politics. You might recall, I think it was Senator Charles Sumner uh, was, was beaten <laughs> with a cane in the U.S. Senate during the debates over slavery. So that, in a way, that's... I hate to say that I don't... When I say I remember that, I didn't because I was there. <laughs> no, you studied it. <laughs> I studied about it. But um, at the end of the Millikan book, as I was trying to sum things up, I, I do feel we're almost at the point we were prior to the Civil War. There is... We are a, a nation divided, not over slavery now, but over some really fundamental values. And it does concern me. And so when I've gone out talking about the Millikan legacy, I often cite Abraham Lincoln's words from his second inaugural, inaugural address, which was with malice toward none. And I feel that's the way Millikan governed. He didn't hate anybody. Uh, he disagreed with people, and people disagreed with him, but he didn't hate anybody. But there is a hate factor in American politics today that is very frightening. We're going to take a break right now, and we'll be back with David Dempsey, environmentalist and author. now about your book and uh, your, your knowledge of uh, Governor Milliken. Uh, did you know him personally? 
Well, in a sense, I met him when I was seven years old, and my dad took the family to the Republican State Convention, which I think was in Flint that year, if my memory serves. So I met him, and I remember thinking, what a nice guy. He leaned over and talked to me as a seven-year-old as though I was an adult. I didn't, I've never been close to him. Uh, I've talked to him over the years on environmental issues, and uh, but really became acquainted with he and Helen Milliken, his wife, uh, during the course of writing the book. I remember the first time that I met Governor Milliken uh, was at a speech in New Buffalo. Uh, he came down to dedicate uh, the marina that they had uh, gotten a state grant for, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, it was, I guess, I, I can't remember if he was dredging it out or, or whatever. And I was stunned because he gave a talk which contained two or three issues that were completely antithetical to what I thought the audience wanted to hear. Absolutely, completely antithetical. For example, he spoke about the need for um, improving the educational system and paying more taxes and equalizing taxation throughout the uh, economic classes and around the state. And he talked about urban problems in Detroit. Now, I'm going to tell you, you probably know this from the time you've been around here, but the folks who live in this area are generally more oriented towards the Chicago South Bend area than they are uh, Detroit. And um, so it's fertile ground here to say, oh, it's just Detroit. But he stood up and he gave this talk which uh, nailed people between the eyes about the responsibility that we all have to live as a, as a whole state as opposed to little segments of it. Um, I was stu stunned by that. And in your book, you talk about the fact that um, this was not unique. He would go around the state doing just that, talking about issues that were tough for people to hear in a particular area. One of my favorite examples of that in the book was uh, a speech he gave, I believe, in Muskegon County, um, in the Muskegon County Republican Party, I believe, in the mid-60s when racial tensions in Michigan were very high. And he went into this fairly conservative uh, meeting and talked about the need for an open housing law and non-discrimination against racial minorities. And the reason it's one of my favorite memories is not just the content of what he said, but the, the uh, news clipping that I found that discussed that said that the uh, Republicans in attendance were kind of put off, like, well, what is he talking about this for? This is not a Republican theme. Um, but I think in doing the kind of things that we're talking about, he did win a lot of respect. Even those who disagree with him thought, well, at least he's willing to say what he believes in. And that is, um, although we talk now as though the politicians are much more direct and blunt and honest, I think they're basically blunt in saying what they think we want to hear, not, not what uh, they really believe. And Milliken was tended to be more willing to take a, a risk a little political capital, even if it uh, cost him in the short run with whatever audience he was speaking to. Well, I think you're absolutely right on that. I never heard it phrased quite that way, that people, um, unfortunately, politicians t can today, and I know them from my own experience, but uh, uh, also listening to them on the, in the media, um, they do talk to the audience, and they can talk loud, and they can talk hard, but it's easy when people are standing there uh, and saying, right on, right, right on, beat them up for me, beat right. them up, rather than go into a, uh, a labor audience and talk about the necessity of 
uh, of um, cutting jobs or cutting streamlining regulations. Streamlining regulations. Right. I what I've found in the book promotion I've been doing as I circulate around Michigan and talk about Millikan and especially listen to people is there is such a hunger for authenticity in our public uh, mm -hmm. leaders now. People will. I believe the time is right for a Millikan-style candidate to basically say. I love this state or I love this community and here's my vision and I, I'm sorry if you don't agree with it but it's, it's what I believe in and I think people will respect that and as you mentioned earlier uh, there's a lot of distaste for politicians now because people think that they're constantly being lied to or pandered to and that's that is really poison the well I think. Well one of the things that you point out in your book is that uh, Millikan may not today or Milliken's acceptability uh, was reduced, at least in part, because he wasn't a stemwinder speaker. I mean, where you just get out and pound the table and scream and yell, and lots of gestures and great stories and that sort of thing. He was, he was. What was the word you used? How, how would you describe him as a speaker? Uh, well, that's a good question. I mean, he was basically a calming voice and not a. a uh, entertainer of any kind, but he was what we used to call a statesman. I mean, pretty much laying things out in a low-key, cool fashion and trying to appeal to people's best instincts. Give us some dates about uh, Governor Milliken. When was he the governor and, and what is he doing now? Well, I'm glad you asked that because uh, I found in speaking to audiences of young people that very few know we had a governor named Milliken, even mm -hmm. though it's only been 24 years. He was governor from 1969 when Governor Romney resigned and went to Washington until uh, January 1st of 1983, which so it's almost 14 years. Uh, prior to that, he served in the state senate and was also lieutenant governor under Governor Romney. And uh, since the, he retired at the end of the 1982 uh, uh, session of the legislature, he's been still very outspoken. There's a chapter in the book about his post-gubernatorial career. He's been speaking out on issues he cares about frequently uh, to no effect, sometimes to, to effect. He, to his credit, perhaps the thing that I think has most uh, occupied him since he resigned or retired is his effort to overturn a law he signed into effect, and that's the mandatory life sentences for uh, possession of certain amounts of drugs. Uh, he, it was a solution to a problem that we probably would pass again today was basically let's throw away the drug users for life and forget about them. And he signed it in an election year, 1978. But after he left office, he started hearing from families of people who uh, weren't really intended to be caught by the law. Instead of being big-time drug dealers, there were people who got caught up uh, in relatively small-time possession in some cases and were basically locked away for life. So he has campaigned successfully admitted his mistake and campaigned successfully for liberalization of the laws, not a repeal. There's, there's, there's still a possibility of life in, in prison for these kinds of offenses, but some people have managed to get out and have a second chance at, at life because of that. Well, in fact, the mandatory minimums when they came in, not only in Michigan but around the country, were in fact a reaction, a violent reaction uh, of the American population to what they saw was abuses of the discretion in sentencing that was had been given to judges in in several areas. Number one, that 
uh, we had judges who were, quote, soft on crime. Right. And uh, that they, secondly, that there were um, judges who were imposing higher sentences on uh, one social or, or demographic class, uh, blacks, Hispanics, whites, whatever, uh, and, and lesser on the ones that they were cottoning to. Uh, so there was inequality of sentencing, and thirdly, there was people. There were people who were uh, uh, a large number of people who were uh, didn't like judges anyway, and generically. And so I think that there was a lot of that built into what brought about uh, mandatory sentences all around. Now we find out that maybe mandatory sentences did produce uh, unequal results, right. injustices, unequal results. Yeah, because of the way the system functions. So um, Bill Milliken, uh, I knew him, I know him. I think he is uh, one of the finest people that ever um, was involved in politics, in my experience, at any level, at any time. I have immense amount of respect for him. Uh, we, he, he backed me on a couple of my campaigns uh, and he told me very directly and, and um, uh, made no bones about it. He and I disagreed on two major issues, um, and, um, but with that, he could still support me and be a co-chair of one of my campaigns. Sounds like Governor Milliken. And, and he's a, a fine, decent human being, the likes of which Michigan should see again, but only if we pray hard. Well, that's what I'm hoping the book will do, is just remind people that there was a time and there can be a time again when public service can be something we respect and when our politicians will treat us as adults and uh, work for the betterment of the state. And it's a style that worked for him and I hope it works for future politicians. Well, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the, every simile can be exaggerated and I think in the, in the uh, uh, in the 60s, the early 60s, we talked about uh, the Kennedy presidency as Camelot. Uh, and if you take that great song from the musical, uh, King Arthur says to the page before his final battle, before he's killed, he said, go home and tell everybody that once there was a spot uh, that um, was Camelot and uh, where decency and law and respect for the weak prevailed. And I do hope that um, Michigan achieves that again. I don't see it now, I will tell you. I do not see it now. I don't either, but I think it can happen. It can happen. David, thank you very much. It's been a very interesting discussion with you. I hope you come back and tell us uh, more about uh, uh, the environment and, and uh, how we in southwestern Michigan can make a difference uh, in preserving uh, what, it is, what is our heritage. And, uh, and our responsibility as well. I look forward to that chance. Our program is With Respect. Join us every Sunday morning and Wednesday morning for more discussion, hopefully giving respect and, and, uh, and knowledge uh, about local issues and about things which uh, we want to hear about. Please join us again. <laughs>